All right. Um, and also, uh, Roger and Hillary have been sick all week. So pray for them. Also, uh, Micah Rose uh, is in the hospital. Uh, he went in because of uh, swelling in his knee, and he has an infection. But he also has COVID. And so what they've done is they've put him in solitary confinement uh, as they give him antibiotics. So pray for Micah. Um, I haven't heard from him this morning, but he's pretty miserable. Uh, I think his COVID symptoms are, are bad, but his knee is a mess. So I want to pray for him. So uh, this morning, of course, you realize that we're going to have a picnic and all of that. But the reason, the real reason that we wanted to do this was because we wanted to take the opportunity to recognize uh, all of the people that serve here at Calvary Chapel, uh, you know, giving of their time voluntarily. We have tons of people that are a part of this fellowship that sacrifice their time, their, their energy, their funds, everything, uh, simply because they just, they love Christ, they love his people, uh, they love to uh, be a blessing to the fellowship, and uh, so we wanted to recognize them, uh, but I wanted to point out some of the things that go on. If I die, it's okay, okay? It, it, it is okay, really. Um, so we have those among us who teach in various capacities, uh, in different groups, we have our men's Bible studies. We have the men's breakfast. We have a number of ladies' studies. Uh, we have the ladies' gather. We have our home groups. Uh, we have those that host the home groups. We have Sunday school teachers, children's church teachers. Uh, we have all of their helpers that work with them. We have those during the week that provide counsel and encouragement to those that are hurting and seeking wisdom. Uh, we have the men that teach in my absence, uh, as you got very well acquainted with when I was gone. Uh, so thankful. We also have the, as you know, the music ministry, those who play, those who sing, those who do the sound, the live stream, the slides, all of that. So many people. We have those, uh, of course, that serve in so many random places so that we have order, we have security here at the church. Uh, we have the, the, the younger people that do the tech stuff. Uh, especially with the sign-in. They run the tech. They make sure the machines are working. We have the, the hospitality folks who sustain our blood sugar so that we can continue to fellowship faithfully. We have our security teams uh, who I'm becoming more and more thankful for as uh, things get crazy in our world. Uh, something else we're thankful of is the overturning of Roe and uh, giving our states a chance to fight for life. And uh, be praying in that regard, too, that the church would more than ever preach the gospel so that the killing of babies would not just be illegal, but it would be unthinkable. Amen? Uh, be praying, uh, of course, for the churches across America, the, uh, the pregnancy centers. Uh, Calvary Chapel Olympia was assaulted by one of the, um, the groups. I don't know if it's Jane's Revenge or what, but the, uh, the front doorway of the church, the red paint all over, they spray-painted the walls with um, uh, God loves abortion, abort the church. If abortion is dangerous, so are you, things like that. So it's coming our way, so we're thankful uh, for our security teams, our ushers, our greeters, those who help with seating when our auditorium is crowded. 
We have the helping hands ladies who serve in so many different ways. We have those with helping and visitation. We have so many people that really serve in the shadows doing maintenance and repairs on the building and uh, doing whatever the ladies uh, ask them to do. We have a team that always comes together when there's memorials, when there's weddings, anything else that is needed. Compassion kind of ministries. People clean, they cook, they serve and help. People keep the grounds here at church. Uh, this morning there was upwards of 100 people getting things together for worship, for food, for all that's going on. And, uh, of course, when there's cleanup afterwards, there's going to be a ton of people. And uh, I was telling somebody this morning, our, our fellowship does not fit into the, uh, the normal statistics where you have 80 to 90 percent of the church that are consumers and then 10 or 20 that serve. Uh, our church defies those statistics. We have so many people that put their hands to the work here at Calvary. And... It's an encouragement to me, it's a blessing, and I know it is to you. So I would like, uh, if you would, if you serve in one of the capacities that I mentioned, or one that I did not mention, would you please stand? Well, I, I intend to make you feel awkward. Uh, the scriptures command us to acknowledge, to recognize. Paul says to highly esteem those that serve among us, their labor of love, yeah. Uh, because you don't decorate the church, so you should just sit down. Mm, thank you. Don't make me call you out. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, we live in a culture uh, that admires celebrities. I hope that that's on the decline, by the way. Athletes, YouTubers, uh, I hope that you're not watching TikTok. But, you know, a host of other people that are really of no value to the kingdom or to the good of humanity. But in the context of the kingdom... Jesus said, those who serve are the greatest, are the greatest. I, I was once told by a, a church leader of a major denomination that the pastor should outserve everyone in the church. There was a time when I believed that and I aspired to it until I started serving here at Calvary Chapel. And I realized that if I tried to keep up with some of the men and women that serve here, um, I would do nothing else and my family wouldn't know who I am. And so I've abandoned that. And I, I do my best to serve my brains out, my heart, uh, but keeping up with some of you is just something I cannot do with four kids and my other duties. So I'm just encouraged. So we're blessed here. So many people love the body. They love to lay their lives down for the brethren. So uh, today, as we're fellowshipping, as we're playing games, we're mingling, uh, I would ask that you, you do your finest to make the people that serve here feel really awkward with your praise and your encouragement and uh, just thanking them. Amen? All right. I'll try to remind you again at the end. Yeah. All right. Well, did you guys bring your Bibles anyway? Because I don't have slides this morning, uh, but I actually had to convert all of my notes over because I had prepared all week for slides. It didn't work, so I had to bring him back to something else. Well, our text this morning is Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 13 through 14. And I, I want to start by saying I didn't select the passage. It comes next in Jesus' sermon. I, I teach it, uh, as you know, in the order that he gave it. And I mention this because the, the next few sections in Jesus' sermon address matters that have to do with judgment, 
with judgment and dividing people between those who are saved and those who will be lost. And some of what Jesus says is harsh, uh, but truth really is the best medicine, especially when it comes to matters of life and of death. Now, I, I think that perhaps what I may say today uh, especially if I just simply repeat what Jesus says through the Gospels, uh, I might be accused of hellfire preaching. Uh, I don't think it's hellfire preaching. I just think that it's truth preaching. And Jesus is the one that said that it's truth that sets people free. Amen. And so I'm going to just preach what Jesus said, and, uh, and I'm going to hide behind his authority. So if you're able, if you, if you can get up off of your lawn chair that you're lounging in, I want to read God's word to you. I'm going to read the three uh, sections here, but we'll focus on verse 13 and 14. So Matthew 7, 13 through 23, our Lord says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it seems that more and more as history progresses that the, the distance between righteousness and lawlessness is, is further away. It's, it's more evident to us. They've always been the opposite of one another, but it seems to be more and more apparent in the world we live. And Lord, I pray that according to your word today, that we would discover what path we're on, that we would know for certain, as John says, I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. Lord, I pray that those who have it will know this morning. Those who don't would also know it. But Lord, that through your message, through the gospel, Lord, that they would, they would enter in to life. So speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Return with me if you would to verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. In our text, Jesus provides you know, four sets of equal opposites. Each is equally as bad as its counterpart is good. So here's the breakdown. We have two gates. We have narrow and we have wide. There are two paths, difficult and easy. Two results, life and destruction. 
And we have two populations. We have the few and we have the many. And Jesus, in the text, he leaves us with the reality that a person uh, chooses one or the other. You can either go with the majority and take the wide and easy path that leads to destruction, or you can join the minority and take the narrow and difficult path that leads to life. It's one or the other. It's either the path to life or it's the path to death. Just as the Lord presented much earlier to Israel, he said, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. So it's always been one way or the other with nothing in between. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo. There's no differing degrees of glory, of discomfort or ecstasy. It is life or destruction, according to Jesus. And, you know, people can dismiss this all they want and complain that it's just too narrow. It's just too exclusive. But reality is filled with limitless things that are one way or another. And it's just the way that it is. We can all imagine something other than what is, a thing that makes for great fiction. But in the end, we will just put ourselves in one or the other exactly as Jesus said. We may not like it. We may wish there were other options, but our distaste for something changes nothing. Our culture is currently, as you know, rejecting binary realities, but it hasn't affected reality in the slightest. We want to change those things, but we, we cannot. So people will experience life or death depending on the path and the gate they enter. And there is no combination of the two, which many prefer. So let's look at this more closely. Jesus begins with an imperative. He says, enter the narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate. He says that because wide is the gate and broad or easy is the way that leads to destruction. So what does he mean by destruction? Two, two times in the New Testament that word is used to talk about money or goods that are just completely wasted. But the many other times the word is used, especially where destruction is held in contrast to life, it means death, but not just any death. Jesus cannot be referring to the death of the body because regardless of what gate or path you take in this life, your body is going to die. Physical death occurs when our consciousness is separated from our bodies, but because everyone will experience this kind of death, Jesus has to have something else in mind. This reference has everything to do with what follows or comes after the death of the body for those who enter the wide gate and take the easy path. So destruction can only refer to the experience of the soul once it is separated from God permanently. Spiros Zodiades in his Greek lexicon. Does this sound like a Greek name, Spiros Zodiades? He has this note on this word. He says, in the New Testament, apaleia, which is the Greek word for destruction, he says it refers to the state after death where exclusion from salvation is a realized fact, wherein man, instead of becoming what he might have been, is lost and he is ruined. That's, the result is permanent. Jesus isn't trying to steer people away here from physical death, but from eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. We see this throughout the scriptures, by the way. Peter says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. 
that word perish comes from the same root as the word that Jesus uses for destruction. So God is always trying to steer man away from death. He's also commanded his people to pray according to his will. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, he says, Pray for all men, because God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So Jesus, in his sermon, he addresses the issue because he assumes that some in attendance were on their way to the wide gate and they were in danger of being lost forever. And you guys, we must assume the same here at Calvary Chapel because Jesus said that the tares, the weeds, will always be among the wheat. The lost will always be mingling with the believer, Matthew 13, 24 through 30. And so like Jesus, we must do our best to warn the tares of the danger. Like Jesus, we want them to be saved. And so like Jesus, I must assume that there are some here, and if they continue on their present course, they will pass through the wide gate, and they will collide with destruction, by which they will forever be separated from the presence of God. A, a horrifying and unthinkable reality. So Jesus says, enter the narrow gate that leads to life. So what does he mean by life? The concept of life here in verse 14 is held in direct contrast to destruction in verse 13. They're equal opposites. The word life cannot be a reference to this life because regardless of the path that you're on, you are experiencing this life. So Jesus is talking about what leads to another life, the life that follows this life for those who enter the narrow gate. So just as the wide gate leads to everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, the narrow gate leads to everlasting life in the presence of God. But how do you know which one you're headed for? Jesus embeds it in the text. He says, the wide gate that leads to death is easy, and it's traveled by the majority. So that path is easy. But first, by an easy path, Jesus does not mean a path that is without the normal struggles of life. You know, the average person is feeling the pain of inflation and gas prices. Everyone gets sick, everyone suffers pain, everyone eventually expires, and unless you're a special class of person, you have to pay your taxes, okay? We all live in a broken world where the moral effects of sin prevail. That's the real experience of all, but our experience is not the path. The path that Jesus speaks of has everything to do with where a person's loyalties lie and the choices they make. So while all humanity suffers from the consequences of sin, both within ourselves and from in the world around us, unregenerate humanity, nonetheless, by their loyalties and the choices they make, they're constantly perpetuating the effects and consequences of sin. They rebel against God and His will, and they serve themselves, seeking absolute autonomy from the Creator, doing all they can to satisfy every sinful passion that they have. So human nature, as has been damaged by sin, seeks the path that interferes the least with its passions. That's the unregenerate world. That's, that's the easy path. That's the wide gate avoiding the responsibilities that God has given man. The other indicator, according to Jesus, that leads to destruction is if you're following the majority, the majority. It only takes a second outside of the, the, the context of our fellowship to find a majority that hates biblical truth. You know, you, you only need mention the spiritual and moral demands of the Bible, and you'll find yourself at odds with the vast majority of everyone in the world, that salvation can only be found in Jesus what God has ordained for marriage, 
what he's prescribed in the roles, the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural expiration, the origin and boundaries of sex and sexuality. They disagree with us. But those who adhere to biblical instruction and affirm what it teaches, they're in the extreme minority. And the majority is quickly increasing and becoming militant toward the minority. The, the path that leads to destruction is easier, and the road is packed with the majority who affirm each other, I would say, in a, a global echo chamber of rebellion. The whole world is rebelling against God. So what about the path that leads to life? Jesus says that this path is difficult, and there are few who find it. Few who find it. It's difficult, or it ought to be. You know, I do hear people say that they don't know how people can go through this life without Jesus. Now, in one sense, I agree. As long as they're not saying their path is easier, if they are, they're not only at odds with Jesus, they're not on the path. But I can agree in another sense because, well, because of Jesus' sacrifice, his people know that their path ends at the gate which leads to eternal life. And in their experience, whether joyful or painful, they have the comfort of the Holy Spirit and his strength that he provides. But it doesn't change the reality that the way of Christ is more difficult, as he says it is. Life becomes difficult in two different ways. Please make Spencer feel awkward for serving today. First, it is because of one's faith in Jesus that we have a moral conflict with ourselves. Have you noticed that? You ever despise yourself? Like Job, who said, you know, I've heard about God with my ears, but now I have seen him with my eyes, and I despise myself. He, he realized what a, what a moral conflict he is in with God, and he realizes that's about himself, so he, he despises himself for it. You see, because we've been made alive to God through his spirit, the redeemed man, the new man, the, the inner man, he's at odds with the old man, the rebellious nature within. You know, I love Paul's, the way he describes his struggle. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that's what I do. Romans 7, 14 through 15. Raise your hand if you've been there, like on the way to church. <laughs> There's a battle that rages in the heart and the mind of the believer. His carnal will is at war with the redeemed will. It's difficult. And then the redeemed are required to carry their cross. You know, that savage instrument of death that calls for the end of self-will. We're, we're called to deny ourselves, the old man who ever seeks a rebellious course. We're to provide nothing for our flesh, nothing for it to indulge in. And the redeemed are to follow Christ in word, thought, and deed. How many of you found that to be easy? It's difficult. The believer currently exists in conflict with himself. But following Christ is difficult, not just because of the conflict with our sin nature. Following Christ automatically puts us at odds with the unbelieving world, a world that we not only live in, but a world that we're obligated to. We're commanded to preach the truth of the gospel. We're commanded to love them. We're commanded to serve and to disciple them to Christ. So there's battle within, and then we're commanded to battle without. So Christianity, as it's represented in the Bible, you guys, it's not a silent or passive minority. Something we forget is the fact that we are a militant minority, though the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. 
but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. Those aren't my words. Paul penned that under the inspiration of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. So union with Christ, loyalty to him has put us at odds with the world and the prince of the world, who is the devil. And both the world and their prince, they get very grouchy when we speak out and when we win those among their ranks. They do. When we, when we obey Christ in this context, it destroys marriages. It does. It destroys friendships, relationships, job security, job opportunities. It can even cost and has cost many people their lives. And Paul says everyone who desires to live godly, he says they will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3, 12. So those who are truly on the path that leads to life, they know difficulty, but they also know that their path leads to life. Now, if you're to take all of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, I think that you can sum them up with these two passages. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. But he also said, and if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23 through 24. So in other words, someone must come to Jesus as he really is, the way, the truth, and the life. And they must follow his lead by obeying his word. So faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. So it's this and, it's faith and that I want to emphasize because there's too many. There's too many people who think they can embrace one or the other, but not both, and then still enter into life. Some really believe that they can say the sinner's prayer or they can confess faith in Christ and then just go on with their life without obeying Christ and they fully expect to enter into eternal life. Very strange, indeed. Others think they can sort of just embrace the morality of Christ without really trusting Christ, loving Him, and worshiping Him. So the former confesses Christ but ignores Jesus' lordship, and the latter ignores Christ but adheres to Christian morality. Too many people embrace one or the other, but Scripture would tell us that Jesus honors neither. He takes the person with their loyalty. At the beginning, we observe four sets of equal opposites, two gates, narrow and wide, two paths, difficult or easy, two results, life or destruction, two populations, few or many. Jesus says that the path to destruction is wide and it's easy and it's traveled by the majority. The path to life is narrow, difficult, it's traveled by the minority. He said there's no combination, did he? There is no combination, it's either one or the other. So you cannot adhere to the morality of the majority, and then confess Christ and enter the gate that leads to life. Neither can you embrace the morality of the minority and ignore Christ and then enter the gate that leads to life. It's either Jesus and his way or it's every other way, which leads to death. No hybrids. Those who believe they can say a prayer like the sinner's prayer, but then live their life apart from the will of God will be lost forever. And those who embrace the morality of Christ but do not rely upon his sacrifice for their sins, they will perish forever. Life will only be experienced by those who trust Christ and obey his word. Don't fool yourself. It's Jesus who said, enter by the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Two paths, two gates. So you are on one of these paths, and you are going to pass through one of the gates. You will either enter into life, or you will collide with death. Some in attendance need to examine themselves very carefully and honestly when it comes to the path they're on. Some of you are just hearers of God's word, but you're not, you're not doers of it. You confess Christ. You attend church. You sing with the rest of us. You may even give to the ministry, but you don't really love Jesus enough to drink in his word and strive to honor him by obeying it. Your passion isn't to follow Jesus' lead. His word is optional to you. This path is nothing but lip service. And, and there are others, interestingly enough, who embrace what is called the Judeo-Christian ethic, hoping they're a good enough person to pass through the gate that leads to life, but their hopes do not rest in the sacrifice of Jesus, which is the only provision God has made for the sins of humanity. This path is faithless, and it's fatal. Both of those paths are a death sentence. I want you to notice quickly here how Paul addresses the issue of, of true Christianity. It's almost in a single breath. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And nothing could be more clear than this passage. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and it's by the gift of God alone. Right? Pretty clear. No one acquires salvation by their works. No set of ethics is good enough to earn this salvation. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He saved us. So no amount of good works can save anyone. It's by grace through faith and nothing else. But Paul continues in that same text in the next verse, verse 10 of Ephesians 2. And he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Please listen careful. It was through this salvation that we acquired by grace through faith that we were created for good works. Not, not just any good works, but those that God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Doing good works, living according to the path that God appointed for us, it is a product. It is a result. It's the fruit of salvation. So listen, if through this salvation you were created for good works, but you're not doing good works, how can you be saved? Where is the fruit? Where is the biblical evidence that you're born again? If this doesn't describe you, if you're not growing in this, if you do not love Jesus, if you're not trusting in His atoning sacrifice, walking in His ways, how can you be certain of your position before God? Listen to what Paul says. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. 2 Corinthians 13.5. If there is no faith in Christ, you're on the wrong path. You're, you're disqualified. If there's no works for Christ, no obedience to Christ, you're on the wrong path. You're disqualified. Where there is a confession of Christ but no fruit, or where there's a Christian ethic but no confession of Christ, Jesus would say, death awaits you. The God of heaven, the creator of all, has only provided one thing to rescue humanity from the penalty of their sin. 
God sent his son Jesus to bear our sins on the cross, to receive the penalty for our crimes, to, to be judged in our place, to give his life a ransom for ours. And then God raised him from the dead to demonstrate to the whole world that he accepted his sacrifice for our sin. And therefore, everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will be saved from destruction. But Jesus said, you must turn from your sin. You must yield yourself to him as a faithful servant to his king. You must exchange your will for his. Do this. Do this, for he is good. His word is trustworthy, and he alone can lead you to the gate to life. Do this. Trust him. Follow him. Let's pray. Would you please stand with me? Well, Lord Jesus, you are the one that said that the tares will be among us. And you said that we're not to pluck the tares or to pull them, but we're to leave them there among the wheat, among your people. And Lord, we desire as you do that, that none would be lost. So Lord, this morning I preach to the tares, pleading with them to examine themselves to see whether or not they belong to you. Lord, help them to, to search their hearts. By your spirit, help them to know what path they're on. And Lord, when they see it, I pray that you'd grant them the grace to repent and to believe upon you. But Lord, I also pray to your people who have become complacent or slack, that they too would repent. And as, as you said, that they would repent and do the first work. So Lord, by your grace, just reveal to us, I pray. And Lord Jesus, I pray for my church family, Lord. Lord, I am so humbled by this fellowship that I, I get to be a part of. Lord, so many people that I'm the student of that I get counsel from. So many people that I, I'm just amazed by the service that they provide, the sacrifice, always being other-centered. Thank you for them. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them, that you would build them up, and that you would invigorate them to serve you more. And Lord, those who are kind of passive, I just pray that you would convict them and uh, Lord, that they would join in the service. Lord, we thank you. Be with us today as we fellowship, Lord, as we eat together. Pray that you'd bless the food to our bodies. And I pray that, Lord, we would, as Paul says, we would grow together into that perfect man who is Christ Jesus and that you would be blessed. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Please drink lots of water so we don't have to call an ambulance, okay? Who likes to get an IV? Okay, so please drink water. Yeah, and if you need to get out of the heat, we have some seating inside the building. You can eat anywhere out here. There's seating inside the gated area. Now, if, if the instruction has not changed uh, since this morning, we're going to have four lines. And so what you'll have to do is line up at one of the barbecues and that's where you'll get your hamburger hot dog. And then you'll travel down the white tables and get uh, everything else that you want to eat. Okay? All right. So, hey, use your time wisely today. Be a blessing to someone else. Encourage others. Get to know others. And, uh, yeah, Lord bless you guys. Love you.